morning. Today's Bible reading is Psalms 122. A song of ascents of David. I rejoice with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statue given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading God's word for us, uh, Lena. It's always a joy to be with you all at Burwood Presbyterian. I love this church. I love the ministries here and I love the people uh, most of all. So thank you for uh, welcoming me here to share God's word with you this morning. Why don't we start by coming to our Father in prayer and asking that he would open our eyes and our hearts. Our Father and our God, we praise you for being the God who keeps his promises Holy Spirit, open our eyes this morning that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open our ears that we may hear what your Spirit says to the churches. And open our minds that we may understand these glorious truths we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our study in the book of the Psalms. And the Psalms are essentially the hymn book of the Bible. In the Psalms, we find the emotions of God's people expressed. We find the promises of God articulated. And in the Psalms, we find the words to pray when we don't know what to pray anymore. The great reformer Martin Luther said this about the Psalms. He said that the Psalms are a little Bible wherein everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended. And so as Christians, there's good reason for us to be familiar with the Psalms, to to live in this glorious book of the Bible. And this morning we come to Psalm 122, Psalm 122, and this Psalm is one of the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, throughout this series, you might have, have become familiar with this term, Song of Ascent. They refer to the songs that the pilgrims would sing as they made their ascent up the mountains, and through the byways and the highways to Jerusalem, to the Mount Zion. They take this journey three times a year for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Weeks. And all of these festivals celebrated God's redemption of his people. And so the Jewish pilgrims would ascend to Mount Zion, to the city where 
God dwelt, many of them taking this journey by foot. And this journey was filled with anticipation. Uh, We read in the first two Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 and Psalm 121, about the trials that the Jewish pilgrims faced on their journey to Jerusalem. But coming to Psalm 122 this morning, we find King David describing the joy of the pilgrims when they are not necessarily on the journey, but they've actually made it to Jerusalem. They finally made it to their destination. And if you're someone who likes uh, structure and likes taking notes, um, a bit of a structure for today's sermon, uh, we're looking at the pilgrim's joy in verses 1 to 2, the pilgrim's praise in verses 3 to 5, and the pilgrim's prayer in verses 6 to 9. And I give credit to the expositor's Bible commentary for that helpful structure. Um, But with this context and structure in mind, let us look at the first section where we find the pilgrim's joy in verses 1 to verse 2. Look with me to verse 1. King David declared, I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Here we find David is invited by a group of others to go up to the house of the Lord. And how does David respond to this invitation to go and worship God? He responds, as we see in verse 1, with, with gladness. And I want to highlight two things about David's gladness here in verse 1. The first thing I want to highlight is that David's gladness is grounded in the Lord. David's gra- gladness is grounded in the Lord. You see, the phrase... I am glad, doesn't really encapsulate the depth of what David is sharing here. It's not like David's just excited to go on a vacation to Jerusalem and take a break from his regular life. The excitement that he has is grounded and rooted in the joy that he has, that he will be soon meeting with the living God. And so his joy is grounded in the Lord, the privilege of meeting with his king was the source of David's gladness. And is this not the experience, brothers and sisters, of us every Sunday as we meet with God's people? The glory and honor of Sunday worship is not in the building that we meet in, as glorious as this building is. It's in the fact that we meet with the living God. The same God who met with David in the house of the Lord over 3,000 years ago. We meet that same God every Sunday when we worship him. And we have the privilege of worshiping Jesus Christ, no longer in a physical temple in Jerusalem, but with his people. And truly, brothers and sisters, there's no greater source of rejoicing than this, is there? A reality more glorious and joyful than anything David experienced. And so in the first place, we learn that David's joy is grounded in the Lord. But in the second place, we see that David rejoices because he finally reached his destination. He finally reached the city of Jerusalem. He declares in verse 2, Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. He declares that his feet are within the gates. They're no longer on the path to Jerusalem. He's made it to the destination. And so this verse may read also, our feet are within the gates. He's finally made it. No more trials and tribulations. No more pilgrimage because he's made it to the house of the Lord and the celebration 
has begun. I love what one author writes. He said, The trials of an expatriate and the hazards of travel are eclipsed now by the joy which had first drawn the pilgrim on his journey. I think many of us will understand something of this joy when we visit our family at Christmas time. Those of us who have to travel long distances, sometimes hours, sometimes days to get to our family, especially when the trip seems never-ending and you have a couple of toddlers in the back who are throwing food everywhere. Uh, It makes it all the more (laughs) anticipatory to get to your destination. And the trip seems never-ending until finally you take that final turn, you drive on that final road and your car comes into the driveway and your feet get out of the car and they're standing within the gates of your family's home. The time to celebrate has begun. We all know this sort of joy in some way or another, but this sort of joy that we experience is but a shadow of the joy that David experienced when he met with the Lord. It's only a glimpse of the joy that we experience when we come to worship the living God. And so David rejoices for two reasons, because he's meeting with the living God and because he's finally reached the gates of of Jerusalem. And here's the thing with true joy. True joy never stays there. It always leads us to praise God. It never just stays and bruise. It always leads us to praise God. And that's what we find here with David. His joy leads him to worship and glorify the God of the universe. And we see this in our second point, the pilgrim's praise from verse 3 to verse 5. Once David arrives in Jerusalem, he praises God for this city, this city that God has ordained that he will have his people worship him in. Verse 3, Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set the thrones of the house of David. This place that God has ordained, Jerusalem, is a citadel. It's a stronghold and a fortress for God's people. When he writes that Jerusalem is bound closely together, he is referring to the fact that it's unified, it's formidable, it's united. And in fact, Jerusalem experiences an internal unity and security from external attacks. Why? Not because it's a great city, or even because it has great people, but because its guardian is the Lord God. Indeed, God ruled the religious worship in Jerusalem and also its political judgments, which is why we read in verse 5 that there were thrones for judgment in Jerusalem. And so because God was the judge in Israel... He was the one who dispensed his judgments through this city. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live in a city like this? Not one that's ruled by corrupt politicians, but one that is ruled by the Lord God himself. And where perfect justice always prevailed. And so to be in the walls of Jerusalem was not only to be secure from outside attacks, but to be in the presence of of the living God. 
What a marvelous thing that would have been. Now, I want to draw your attention to something quite remarkable that I noticed in this psalm as I was studying it. It will require a bit of attention, so pay special focus to this section. If you look at the first verse of this psalm, just above it, there's a little superscription uh, that's usually with every psalm. This one particular one says, A Song of Ascents of David. This is part of the original manuscript, so it's, it is part of God's word. David was the author of this psalm. And yet, in 2 Samuel 7, we read that God promised David a dynasty. He promised to build his house, an eternal house that would never fade or perish. And for those who are familiar with that glorious promise and prophecy in 2 Samuel 7, you'll remember that God did not allow David to build the house. He said that one will build it after you. It would be Solomon, his son, who'd build the house of the Lord. And so it wasn't built in David's lifetime. And yet in verse 5, David says, Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. So David's speaking in the past tense about something that is going to happen in the future, which raises the question, how can David speak about something that's yet to happen as if it's already happened? How can David say that thrones for judgment were set when they hadn't been set yet? And I believe the reason why he speaks like this is because for David, the promises of God were as good as done. The promises of God were as good as done. He could speak in the past tense about future events because he was that confident that God would fulfill his promises. He was that sure that God would do what he he told him he would do, that he could speak of it in the past tense. I mean, is is this how we often think about the promises of God? Do we often think about the promises of God as if they're good as done? I know that as Christians, we'll confess with our lips, if anyone were to ask us, do you believe in the promises of God? We would say yes and amen. But do we live as if those will actually come to fruition? That God will actually follow through with what he said? I mean, if we really believe in the new Jerusalem, why do we get so anxious to establish our own kingdom on earth? If we really believe in hope after death, why do we so often fall into despair? If we really believe that Christ has prepared an eternal inheritance for us, why do we get so caught up in chasing after material possessions? If we really believe in the final judgment, why are we so afraid to share the gospel? Brothers and sisters, we are all so frail when it comes to believing in God's promises and yet how beautiful is it that God gives us a model of what it looks like to trust in God's promises in King David here in Psalm 122 you see it's not that David had a strong faith it's that David has full confidence in a strong God who will absolutely fulfill every one of his promises even when it seems like everything is going to loss. You see, there's something else that's worth drawing our attention to in the text, and it concerns the way that David speaks about worship. 
For David, there was no better place to be than the mighty fortress of his God. Not only by himself, but with all of God's people. And you'll notice in verse 1, if you look back once more to verse 1, David rejoices. He said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Do you notice the plural language here? It's not just an individual who's doing it. It's, it's, it's God's people coming together. More than this, you look at verse 4. Here we read that Jerusalem is the city to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. It's a beautiful image. Can you just imagine all of the tribes of Israel, all the 12 tribes coming together, though they lived in their individual territories with all their distinctions and differences, And yet they would gather three times a year to declare that they are one. Not based on any cultural characteristic, but based on the fact that they worshipped the Lord God. They left their hometowns and undertook a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to be with God's people to worship him. And so we see something extraordinary about worship in this passage, that worship has always been a communal affair. It's never been a privatized religion. There was no category for a believer that was not part of corporate worship. And so the idea of a lone ranger Jew was an oxymoron. And brothers and sisters, the same can be said about our faith, for we are the new Israel. The author of Hebrews declares, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And so although we no longer worship at the physical, uh, earthly Jerusalem, we have come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. Every Sunday we come to worship. And so the local church is the Mount Zion for the believer. The local church is the community that God has purchased us into. And so as God had appointed this city, Jerusalem, as the place where he would be worshipped, we must recognize that God has appointed local churches as the place that he's called us to worship. It's by his appointment. And so by necessity, this means that we worship God not as mere individuals, but with his people. And this is because God has designed us to worship him in community. We don't regularly meet with God's people purely for the sake of the people or for the building, but it's for the sake of God's glory and subsequently for the good of his people. And every time we participate in Sunday worship, we declare to the world that we cannot do this alone. We have no strength in ourselves, and we need the gifts that God has given his people to build us up in our faith. And what a privilege it is that our God invites us each week to worship him like this. And so the first thing we see about worship is that it's a communal affair. However, we find something else about worship in the text as well, and that is that worship is an expression of thankfulness. Worship is an expression of thankfulness. Why was it that the tribes of Israel went up to the house of the Lord? You look in verse 4, 
they went up to the house of the Lord to give thanks to the name of the Lord. What, what did they give him thanks for? In one sense, they gave him thanks for all things, for life and breath and everything else. For God is the source of all good things. He sustains our very lives. However, I think that there was something very specific which they came up for these three festivals to celebrate. And we find the answer in verse 4. We read that it was decreed for Israel that the tribes would go up. What is this referring to? It's most likely referring to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, where God instructs his people to come up for these three festivals each year, these three holy days. And so while the thanksgiving would have included thanking God for life and breath and everything else, it had a specific focus on his redemption and salvation of his people. For all of these three festivals celebrated what God did in driving his people out of Egypt, in providing for them in the wilderness, and providing the law for them on Mount Sinai. And so it wasn't just this uh, religious obligation for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. It wasn't just a dry ritual without emotion. It was a time, as verse 4 says, of thanksgiving. And true thankfulness always comes from the heart. A time of true thankfulness. And as the Bible reminds us time and time again, our greatest joy is not when we're focused on ourselves, but when we're focused on God and all that he's done for us. When our hearts are filled with thankfulness and awe at the fact that the God of the universe would love a sinner like me. And so we find David rejoicing in the first section. We find him praising in the second section. In this third final section, we find him praying to God. His joy led him to praise and his praise led him to pray. And we may call this section the pilgrim's prayer. Look with me to verse 6. David prays. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. There's one word that sticks out in that section more than any other. It's the word peace. We see it many times. He, David prays for the peace of Jerusalem. He prays for peace for those who love God. He pe- prays for peace within Jerusalem's walls. He prays for peace among God's people. And he prays for peace to prevail in God's holy city. And the word peace is a good word. But like gladness, it doesn't really encapsulate the depth of what David is praying for. The Hebrew word here used for peace is shalom, which means wholeness and fullness and completeness and health and security. It's even in the name Jerusalem, if you noticed. It's the final shalom in the word, which means the city of peace. 
And so David here is praying that Jerusalem would experience something greater than peace. That they would experience shalom. And is this not our greatest need as well? As we prayed earlier this service, we live in a fundamentally insecure world. The last few years have demonstrated to us that we live in a financially insecure world. If the government chooses to print large amounts of money in a heartbeat, the value of our money can be destroyed overnight. Due to technological change and workplaces restructuring, our jobs are not secure. You can even lose lose your life savings due to a poor investment decision. It's also a physically insecure place. Your body can be destroyed by an illness. A foreign army can come in and take your life. A vehicle can run you over and cause you death. And it's also a socially insecure place. Your friends can betray you. Family members can persistently argue with one another. And those closest to you whether we like it or not, will eventually pass away. And my work at an aged care home has revealed that clear as crystal, that it's coming for all of us. And so the longer you live, the more it will become clear that the world is a fundamentally insecure place, which begs the question, in such an insecure world, where can we find this sort of shalom that God is speaking about? Where can we find this rest and this peace? You see, David had a foretaste of shalom in the earthly Jerusalem, but this shalom did not last. The very temple constructed by his son was destroyed in 586 BC, reconstructed in 530 BC, and then destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. It didn't last And you see, this was always God's intent. The city of Jerusalem was never intended to be an end in itself. It was always supposed to be a foreshadow of a greater city whose architect and builder is God. And what what city is this? Brothers and sisters, this city is the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem, a city that the Lord Jesus Christ has prepared for all who love him a city that will never perish or fade away, and a city where shalom will reign forever. This city we learn about in Revelation 21. If you'd like, you can flick forward in your Bible to Revelation 21, or you can just listen along. Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven... And a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying. Behold. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I'll be his God and he'll be my son. Now, if you've joined us this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I suspect that you too don't feel at home. Relationships are broken. Work is toilsome. Pleasure is fleeting and life is weary. And worst of all, death is inevitable. It's coming for all of us. And as someone who is seeing this again day after day, the reality of death, let me stress that it's something that will catch you when you least expect it. And so let me ask you, if this is you this morning, do you want to be a citizen of this grand city? Do you want to be a member of his people and dwell in his house forever? Do you want to know perfect peace? Do you want to experience shalom with God and his people for all eternity? And if the answer is yes, then come to him today. Bring all of your sin and your sorrows to Jesus Christ, knowing that he alone offers forgiveness to you through his blood. And come to him with the confidence that Christ promised that he will never cast someone out who comes to him. But be assured that without Christ, there is no shalom in life or death, but only the fearful expectation of his judgment. And if it were not for the grace of God, all of us Christians would be in the same place. And yet if you are a Christian here this morning, be assured of this liberating truth, a wonderful truth, that we too, like the pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, are pilgrims. That describes us quite well as we live in this world. The New Testament calls us sojourners. In other words, we aren't home yet. And so we shouldn't be surprised when the world is so flawed. In fact, if we felt like citizens here, our hope would only be in this life, and what a terrible thing that would be. And so, brothers and sisters, there is a day when our feet shall stand within the gates of the New Jerusalem, A day when you will no longer be sojourners, but you'll be home with your father. And friends, this is a city that God has promised to us. And just like David trusted that God's promises were good as done, so we can trust that those promises are good as done. God will take you to this place where there is no more mourning, no more crying, and no more pain. But more importantly, we shall be with the living God who will dwell with us forever. And how is it that you can be sure that God will do this? It's because the blood of God's one and only Son 
was shed to cleanse us from all of our sin and to clothe us in his perfect righteousness. This is all that makes us worthy of such a place, for we have nothing of our own. And this is exactly why we feel strangers here. It's because we don't belong here. We belong to a city where God rules and reigns, where shalom prevails forever, the city where the living God dwells. Let us pray. Father, in and of ourselves, we are not worthy to be in your presence. We are not worthy to be citizens of an eternal city that will never perish or fade. And yet you have made us worthy through the blood of your one and only Son. Lord, we praise and worship you this morning. Lord, give us faith to believe in your promises. Give us faith to believe that you are taking us to be with you. And give us assurance that true shalom is something that we will experience and is just a short time away. We pray that you'd comfort the downtrodden and the weary here this morning. And we pray that you would lead those here this morning who don't know you to a true and living faith by your spirit. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.